Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato Arato Samma Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami In Buddhism, at least in early Buddhism, we say that understanding the Four Noble Truths is both the beginning of the path and the end of the path. It's the beginning of the path in the sense that it's fundamental fundamental to right view, the first of the aspects of the Noble Path, Noble Eightfold Path, as it's described in the early suttas. And it's the end of the path in the sense that the Buddha described his own awakening as having fully known, fully penetrated those four truths. And so folks like to quibble over whether they are noble truths or ennobling truths, this word. Uh, Arya satcha, Arya. And... uh, They are noble because they are part of the Noble Eightfold Path. They are part of this life of awakening. And they are ennobling in the sense that when we, when we make an effort to bring these truths into our lives, into our understanding, our embodied experience then, that is a noble thing to do. That's an honorable thing to do. And so the first two noble truths, I think, are the ones that get a lot of attention. The truth of dukkha. Say perhaps the most appropriate, the the broadest way of thinking about dukkha is just unsatisfactoriness, including various forms of pain, various forms of difficulty, suffering, bodily and mental. And then there is the cause of dukkha, the cause that is described as uh, the 
primary cause, you could say, that is described both in the Four Noble Truths and in the twelvefold chain of dependent origination, is craving, tanha, literally thirst. But that third truth is the one I want to talk about today. The truth of the cessation of dukkha. Because I would propose that there is the cessation of dukkha all along the path. There's not just one final moment in which dukkha completely falls off, all the parts fall off at one time, so to speak, all of the drivers, but rather that it's a gradual path, and in the course of that gradual path, then dukkha is ceasing in a variety of ways. And so two ways that we might begin to see that, we might begin to experience that in our lives, is by experiencing more joy. And joy not necessarily based on outer conditions, but joy based on our inner world, our inner conditions. And we might find the second aspect that I want to point out today. We might find that we are able to not cling to that joy, that we are able to know when it's here, enjoy when it's here, let it be gone when it's gone. And there are a number of ways that, uh, that the Buddha speaks about joy. And so I want to talk specifically about those today. Some of them. And um, to be sure, the idea is that we can put conditions in our lives or observe conditions that are present in our lives that evoke this joy. Again, present in our inner world and our way of relating to what's happening in this body and mind, in this environment that we find ourselves in these relationships and so on. Because you can't force joy, right? That formula doesn't work very well. So there's a particular sutta that I like to talk about with regards to this, in which there are three different kinds of joy. I'm actually going to talk about four tonight, but we'll start with the three, and then we'll see how far we go. And um, some of you may have heard me speak about this sutta a little bit before, uh, 
or two suttas actually that are nearly identical, 11 Anguttara, 11.1 and 11.2. That's, um, Anguttara means the numbered discourses or the proceeding by one. So it's a, some people might say it's a funny way to organize the discourses, but it was, it's used as, a, as both a memory technique for years back in the very, very early days when suttas were an oral tradition that was being carried and passed from person to person by memorizing them, but also just a handy way of uh, referring back to the teachings, right? If you know that there are five in the list, then you could go look in the Book of Fives and hope to find it. So this is from the Book of Elevens, which is the last the last part of the Anguttara, there are no twelves. So, um, and this particular set of, uh, this particular sequence is the Buddha talking about the, the purpose or the benefit of various aspects of the path. And he's saying, and he's using this phrase, the, the, which is now the, been given as the title of the suttas. Suttas didn't really have uh, these titles are translated. They were given later um, as the discourses became organized. But the, this phrase of uh, not by an act of force or an act of will, and so he gives a particular sequence. And the beginning of the sequence is, it starts with a person who is ethical, a person who is living an upright life, a life, uh, a moral life. And he says, for a person who is ethical, or sometimes it's, it can be translated as virtuous, but I think for some of us in the West, that word has a lot of baggage associated with it. But a person who is ethical um, need not, uh, by an act of force, say, I would like to be free of remorse. A person who is ethical would naturally become free of remorse. That's the first step in this particular sequence. And so the next step is then one who is free of remorse would experience joy, a particular kind of joy, a particular kind of delight called pamoja or pamuja. It's the same actually identical word with two different pronunciations, at least according to Polytech Society. And it's this kind of delight uh, looking at your own practice, looking at your own life and saying, wow, look at the, I'm doing some good stuff here. I'm making some good choices. It's really about um, remembering to uh, acknowledge 
the positive, the beneficial choices that you're making in your life. And, uh, and feel good about that. And I, like, I really enjoy this particular one because I think that you don't have to have the perfect life in order to have Pamoja. You can just feel good about the times when you made good choices. And the times when you didn't make good choices well, then you could chalk those up to do better, learn from them, etc. But the times that you did, then you could remember that, you could observe that, you could know that, right? Acknowledge that, enjoy it. And interestingly, this particular uh, a uh, form of joy is said to um, uh, have the effect or the tendency to block out the unwholesome roots. The unwholesome roots are greed, hatred, and delusion. So when you're having, so if you think about that, it's, it, may, it pretty much makes sense, right? So it's in order to live an ethical life, in order to follow the precepts, for example, as a way of living an ethical life, you would be, to some degree, if not completely, setting down greed, hatred, and delusion. And in that moment that you're recollecting that, and you're acknowledging that, and you're feeling good about that, then you also would be. If only momentarily, you would be setting down greed, hatred, and delusion. And just reflecting on wholesome states, wholesome choices, wholesome aspects of your life, wholesome aspects of your mind. Right? So it has a it has a very uh, it has an uplifting quality to it, and a way of clarifying the mind. And that's important because then we go on to the next step. But before we do that, I want to say, well, what happens if you feel discouraged? What about if the opposite happens? If you look at your life and, and maybe you're leading a more or less ethical life or you're, you're doing your practice and you look at your life and you feel discouraged. Then what about that? And in that case, I would say it's helpful to distinguish between the content and the process. So let me unpack what I mean by that. So when you observe something happening in your life, you observe this, this um, you know, something that has happened, some choice that you made, or just the way your day is going, or whatever it is, that, or some, you know, the practice uh, on the cushion that day, whatever it is. When you observe that, it's very helpful to have clarity about what is it that you're observing. Are you observing a content? And by that I mean something like, mm, let's say, uh, a story or an emotion or uh, some kind of bodily sensation. Are you looking at the content? Or are you looking at the process? Are you looking at the mechanism that was at work there? 
Right. So I, when I was on retreat recently, I shared this story, and I'm not sure if I've shared it during the Tuesday tune-in, so I'm going to go ahead and do it again, maybe. <laughs> Which is that when I was on retreat back in March, I had exactly this thing happen. I was sitting in the meditation hall, and it was pretty, you know, a couple weeks into a month-long retreat, and I was sitting in the meditation hall, and I didn't have my inflatable cushion, my air zafu. I was just sitting on a regular buckwheat zafu, because that's what I happened to have on hand with me. And, um, and at one point, after some period of time, it started to get painful, it started to get very uncomfortable. So there I was, I'm sitting there, and I thought, oh, painful feeling. Okay, I notice painful feeling. And then I go back to my breath, all right, breathing. And then after, again, some period of time, I notice, oh, painful feeling, painful feeling, painful vedana, right? Feeling tone. And then, woof, okay, so I go back to my breath. And then... Some moments, some number of moments later, I think to myself, I hate this pillow. <laughs> and since that word hate doesn't come up in my mind very often, I thought, wow, you know, I should really look at this for a second, because what happened there? Do I really hate this pillow? But anyway, I didn't want to go down that line of reasoning. What I did want to do was kind of unpack the process, right? So I saw that content that content of, I hate this pillow, which is what? It's a sankara, right? It's a mental formation. It's a reaction to a perception, and a perception arises on the basis of a feeling tone. So earlier, and that was the good news, was that because earlier I had noticed the feeling tone of unpleasant feeling, right? Painful feeling. Then it was easy for me to draw the connection. Oh, right. So then I had another moment of, unpleasant Vedana, but I didn't catch it. And then so I skipped forward, and then the attention landed on this Sankara, right? So this reaction arose because my mindfulness missed that earlier moment of the feeling tone. Right? So that's different. So then I could see then that reflection that I just vocalized for you, that is seeing the process, right? That's different than the content that's there. It's actually looking back at the process. Okay, what happened here? What was the mechanics of this thing? Right. Oftentimes using one of the frameworks that the Buddha has given us. So in this case, using the frameworks of the five aggregates, the five khandhas. So when you feel discouraged about your life, or you feel, you know, some kind of, uh, discouragement or dukkha, instead of pomoja, when you reflect on something, you reflect on your practice or you reflect on your life, then it's good to have a look there. Okay, so what is it that you're reflecting on, first of all? Are you reflecting on a particular content? And if you're reflecting on that content, then content can change. Right? Content can change. Both in terms of just, you know, we make choices, we go on to something else, things fall apart, etc. Content can change in our lives. Um, 
but um, what did I write here? Oh, only when we know. Okay, yes. So content can change only when we know. And, and I would say change uh, change in a long-term way, change in a, in a profound way, when we know, the Buddha said, when we know three things, the gratification, the danger, and the escape is the way that it's usually translated. I think all three of those are terrible translations. So let me, tell, let me say what we're talking about here. So, so the, the gratification or the beneficial part of whatever you're doing, right? What is it that you like about some habitual choice that is causing you dukkha? Because usually there's some positive in there somewhere. Otherwise, you wouldn't keep doing it over and over again. And the Buddha recognizes that. He's not saying that, right? He's not saying that all of life is negative. Even negative choices have some sort of, oftentimes, positive aspect to them, something that we like about it. But then there is this second part, which is usually translated as, as the danger, but it's actually more like that. It's like, what's the painful part of it or the, or the disagreeable part? What's the harm that's being caused? And when we see clearly the harm, and sometimes we need to see it many times, many, many, many times. But when we see clearly the harm, sometimes that is what's discouraging. That's what's painful. It's like, oh, look, and there I go again doing that thing. But the fact is that seeing it sometimes, many times, it will eventually sink in. Ah, yes, right. This, as my, my, my dear, 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 dear teacher, Blanche Hartman, who is long dead now from San Francisco Zen Center, she was the first abbot of, woman abbot of San Francisco Zen Center. And she used to say, oh, yeah, I know where that train's going. She was from the south. I know where that train's going, and I'm not getting on it. Thank you. Right? Because why? Because you've seen the harm. So sometimes it takes time. Sometimes when you, it, you have only seen it to a superficial level, and you need to see it even deeper. And you might think, oh my gosh, really? But you might need to see it even deeper before you can understand the other part, which is translated often as escape, which I find really distasteful. I would say more like the release that you're willing to just release that. Release that as a driver. Release that as a choice. Release that content for a better alternative. So that's the content side. So content can change, and it requires us to do some observation. And even that observation sometimes is going to be hard. It's going to be painful. And on the process side of things, the good news, bad news is, process does not change. Process does not change. This system, this mechanism, for example, that mechanism that I just described about how contact works with the five aggregates and then these aspects of mind arise, that does not change. If you're hoping that that's going to change 
that is going to bring you dukkha for sure. That is the part of dukkha that we need to understand the process piece of it. And that is why in the third discourse, right? So the Buddha describes this Four Noble Truths in the first discourse. Then, thankfully, he gives us a little bit of a break and moves on and to the fire sermon. And then he goes to the, the third sermon, which is Sermon on Not-Self. And it's there where he says, and you cannot make your form. I talked about this last week, I think. You cannot make your form or your mind be, you cannot force it to be this way. You cannot always choose it to be this way. Why? Because it works according to a certain mechanism. So if you're trying to make choices that are working against the mechanism, that by definition is, fail, is going to fail. So you need to understand the process and find ways to work within the process, right? So just as I was trying to do there on my cushion in my retreat, to go back and look at the process. Ah, what happened there? Right, oh, I get it now. And when I had the mindfulness at this point, then, right, that sequence didn't need to unfold in that way. But when I didn't have the mindfulness there, then it unfolded in that way. Right? But if I wanted to say, oh, I want it to not happen like that, I want, I want somehow that it would be okay, for example, that I could just sit here with painful feeling and ignore my painful feeling and not eventually have some kind of mental arising out of that, that wouldn't make sense, right? That's just, it's not going to happen. That's the process nature of it. So, so that's one thing to very carefully look at when, when, you have, uh, when you feel discouraged instead of feeling joy when you're reflecting on your practice or reflecting on your life. And then, oh gosh. <laughs> I said I was going to talk about four kinds of joy. I've only talked about one and I have, what, about two minutes left. So, okay, wait. I'll go, I'm going to go over a little bit more, but... Um, so in this Sutta 11.2, then it goes on. So the next step after the Pamoja is Piti. So for one who has, let's see if I, if I, um, for one who is joyful, no volition need be exerted. Let rapture arise in me. That is the, de- that is, this is the translation from Bhikkhu Bodhi in the num- numer- numbered discourses. So again, it's a little bit of a language that I wouldn't be using. But So this word that he's translating as rapture is piti. And actually, piti is like that. I used to think that that was like an overstatement, but no, actually it is. But it can also have more subtle levels. And piti is generally associated with the uh, more clear, more still mental states. So when the mind starts to calm, then, and the, and the body, so the body and the mind are calming, calming each other, and they condition each other, and, some, and oftentimes the breath is used as, as a, a, a way to do that. Um, then that kind of settling of the mind and that kind of clearing of the mind is joyful. And we feel this very strong joy that can arise in the body and in the mind also. Okay? 
So PD. And, and even small, there is a, like, it's said that, um, I'm not going to break it out now because it's too, I've been talking too much, but um, in the Visuddhimagga, so in the Path of Purification, which is this fifth century commentary on the suttas, um, it says, oh, the first level of PT is just having your hair stand up. <laughs> so like even very subtle amounts of pleasure that you can feel in the body when you start to relax, right? All of that is, is PT. So that's another kind of joy. Right? This very physical joy. And then after PT, then there is tranquility. There is pasadi. Huh? So the, for one with a rapturous mind or a mind with PT, they don't need to exert their will to say, let my body become tranquil. Let my body become peaceful. Why? Because the body doesn't tend to resist pleasant. Right? The body wants to kind of Ah, absorb the pleasant. Oh, so nice. Right? And you can kind of lean into that. You can feel yourself perhaps in the meditation, sort of lean into that. Um, not literally lean in, because again, what we're doing is letting the body relax, but take it in, really absorb it. And then after this tranquility, then you have sukha. So now sukha and piti are said to always go together. And sukha is just really like a contentment. Like a contentment. So it's said that the traditional metaphor for this is um, if you were in the desert and you were walking in the desert and you were thirsty and someone told you about an oasis or you see an oasis, a real one, not a mirage, but an actual real oasis in the desert, then that would arouse piti in you, right? There's like an excitement to it and a very excited, uplifted, physical joy. But then when you get to the oasis and you drink the water, then that's the sukha. They're like, ah, that's the second part. So that's the third kind of joy. And we haven't even gotten to awakening yet or any kind of insight. And you still already have three different forms of joy that the Buddha has spoken about here. And so the sutta goes on, and I'll just name the steps for a second. And then I want to say a few words about one other kind of joy, which is not in the sutta, but just to go on. So then. For one who is tranquil, they feel pleasure or sukha. They feel this pleasant contentment feeling. And then with, with sukha, there's no need to make a determination or a force of will. Let my mind be concentrated. So, so concentration or samadhi. Samadhi is supported also by pleasant states of mind, pleasant states of body. Why? Again, because the mind is willing to hang out there. And because when this pleasant feeling, just as I was saying about the Pomoja, when these kinds of joy are arising in the body and the mind, then that has the tendency to push away, to, put, to not leave room for the hindrances and the unwholesome roots, right? You don't have a lot of negativity going on in the mind if you're focused on these kinds of joy. So then the mind is willing to hang in there and it doesn't have these 
difficulties that are kind of hooking you or getting you out of the ability to continue to settle and, and bring the mind into focus. It's one way to think about samadhi, like turning the lens, bringing the mind into focus on itself. And then with concentration, ah, one yata bhuta nyanadasana. One knows and sees things as they truly are. And one who knows and sees things as they truly are, then that person, it said, becomes disillusioned. Not in a bad sense. We have a negative connotation with that word in English. It, in, a, in a literal sense, like disillusioned, like letting go of your confusion about the world. Right? You begin to see reality as it is. And that's how we define wisdom in Buddhism. To see, to have an embodied, clear experience of the true nature of things. So then there is this uh, uh, disenchantment or this um, uh, dispassion, this kind of uh, no, no longer clinging to, no longer identified with these things. Because again, by seeing the process and the content and knowing how they work, then you don't need to hang on for dear life anymore. You could just be in harmony with that. Because you've experienced it. And you've experienced how as I said, there is no going against the process. And so finally then, that one has the knowledge and vision of liberation. So that is the full complete path all the way to freedom, to awakening. And then this last bit that I want to talk about, even though I'm going over time, but this is totally worth it, is the last fourth kind of, of joy that I want to mention is mudita, right? empathetic joy. It's called a heavenly dwelling for a reason, people. <laughs> seriously, seriously, empathetic joy. So. What, does it, what is empathetic joy? It means joy sparked by other people's wholesome joy. Yeah? And so, as I often say, if you're only going to feel happy for good things that happen in your life, then you'll have a certain amount of opportunity, right? You have a certain number of moments, certain number of touch points, let's say. But if you're going to feel happy and well about lots of people's wholesome joy, then so many more opportunities. So many more opportunities. The other day I was on my Twitter feed, so you know, I have a personal Twitter account, which I started years ago because I found that it was really fun to come up with these little pithy Dhamma sayings. And, um, when you only had half the number of characters that you have now on Twitter now, you can say a lot. But, um, and now Dasanaya also, the community also has its own Twitter account. So I'm on there uh, almost every day. Oftentimes I put it down. But uh, I was on there a couple of days ago and there was this video, maybe some of you saw it, 
of some folks in Thailand. And there was a, a little baby elephant and the baby elephant had fallen in a drain hole. And so it was the little baby elephant was lying there in the drain hole, very deep hole. And it was upset, it was crying. Rah! You know how elephants make this kind of, not a roar, but like a, a cry like that. And it was squirming around and making this sound, this crying sound. And the mama elephant actually dropped fell her first front part of her body into the hole in order to put her trunk next to her baby's trunk and ease her baby. Mm. And then this is where it really gets good. So she does that. And then they go and try to save them, right? They try to pull, they need to pull them out of this situation. And so the mama refused to back up. She would not move. She would not move. So they literally got a crane and they strapped a harness around her, elephant-sized harness around her, and started to pull her up. And from the stress of it, she passed out. She literally passed out. And so they pull her up on land and they lie her down on her side. And then in the meantime, they're digging out the side of the hole so that the little baby could come out. And then they start giving her resuscitation, elephant-sized resuscitation. Like people literally standing on her side and jumping up and down and somebody breathing into her, to several people actually, breathing into her mouth and the whole thing in order to resuscitate this poor mama elephant who got so mm -hmm. distressed and the baby who also got distressed. So then the baby was able to climb out of the hole Mom got resuscitated, and in the end, they both stood up and walked back into the forest together. <laughs> and I got misty-eyed. I watched this thing like three or four times because it was such a beautiful story. I've seen that. Such a beautiful story. So I had my big dose of mudita that day. Feeling <laughs> mudita for all those people that helped, for the mama elephant, for the baby elephant. Right. So it's possible. It's possible. It's not all bad news. That's the lesson of mudita. It's not all bad news. So with that, I will pause and thank you all for your beautiful attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.